0: If instead of bailing out the financial system, which had caused this crisis, the mortgagers had been bailed out, the the amount of bailout required would have been substantially less in the billions instead of in the trillions, and also the Great Recession which followed would have been averted. But this theory was not adopted because it did not favor the interests of the rich. And so what happened in history was that there was this battle of two theories and the theory which one was not the right theory, but the theory which one was the one which was used in uh, conducting policy and therefore that theory prevailed and it shaped the policy response. We try to understand history. We try to shape history by the way of theories. Our theories then shape history and history shapes the theories. So this is the what I call entanglement.
1: You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and in corporate media. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today's part two of my two-part conversation with Asad Zaman on the 2001 edition of Karl Polanyi's 1944 book, The Great Transformation. This is also the final part in a larger four-part series on the book. Parts one and two are with Jackson Winter. Jackson and I are two smart layperson NMTers trying to come to terms with the depth of what we just read and connecting it to our lives and NMT. Parts 3 and 4 are with Professor Zaman, who is a Ph.D. economist with many lectures, papers, and posts on the topic, all of which you can find in the show notes to Part 1 with Professor Zaman. Part 1 also contains a summary of the book. You think you understand the foundation of our economy and society, but as described in The Great Transformation, there's another foundation beneath it. If you like what you hear, then I hope you might consider becoming a monthly patron of Activist MMT. Patrons have exclusive access to several full-length episodes right now. Patrons also get the opportunity to ask my academic guests questions, including my recent episode with Warren Mosler. They also support the development of my large and growing collection of Learn MMT resources and the course with Professor Zaman. To become a patron, you can start by going to patreon.com slash Every little bit helps a little bit, and it all adds up to a lot. Thanks. And now, let's get right back to my conversation with Asad Zaman. Enjoy.
0: to drop the idea of nations and say, let us think of the world as uh, one human, as humanity, and ask what kind of trading system would benefit the masses, we would come up with a radically different type of trade.
1: Um, Can you address briefly how mercantilism fits into this?
0: Ah yes, mercantilism was an early. Basically, if you look at economic theories, you see that as the system was evol- evolving, the theories were co-evolving with the system. So, basically, when we talk about the gold standard for a century, that was just um, um, the mercantilism. Basically, focused on acquiring gold, and and how can you do that by selling goods to the other countries, but. Uh, mercantilism period was a period of where you wanted money to conduct wars whether it was with other states or whether it was colonizing wars but you needed gold to pay your soldiers and and to build your uh, industrial products and to import the things that were essential for um, your industry like raw materials etc so basically Gold was needed for wars, but this uh, war was an expensive way to acquire resources of other countries. And after colonization took place, then uh, you could do that by monetary methods. And today, after the world wars, basically the financial system is able to extract uh, revenue from all of the world without, in very peaceful ways, like for example, they have entrapped the US um, students in a trillion dollar debt. And so they will be working their jobs and paying off for the corporations, basically, because the corporations will extract their tithe uh, in terms of the interest payments on the loans that they have been given for the study. Whereas the society itself could have arranged for this education on a cooperative basis simply by reorganizing the structure of rights. If we live in a society where every student is entitled to education as a human right, uh, then um, they wouldn't have to pay for it. I mean, it's the collective responsibility of the society to pay for the education of all the children living in our society. Uh, This simple ideological attitude would uh, change the world can you address how mercantilism
1: although it was not great for 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 average people that that at the time and given the context of the world at the time that mercantilism was an appropriate policy
0: yeah basically when adam smith wrote mercantilism was the dominant economic theory and basically Adam Smith tra- uh, is the transition point from mercantilism to free trade, and uh, before Adam Smith, the nations were competing with each other on uh, the battleground. And so, for that book is about basically the uh, how the states can acquire power, and power involves. Getting gold and all of the theories, the the mercantilist theories are basically designed to, uh, say, practical advice on nations on how to acquire economic power. But the nature of economic power changed as the uh, system developed, and uh, you could get more power by trading with the enemy than by battling them, and so the economic system changed. In that direction.
1: Okay. Um, all right. My next question, I think, is the least well-formed, but I but uh, I think it is certainly enough to get you to um, understand what I'm talking about. Um, okay. Fascism. Fascism is not a powerful movement in and of itself. Rather, it's something that fills in the vacuum caused by the suffering of the self-regulating market. So he talks about, closer to close to the end of the book, he talks about, maybe it's even in the notes, but he talks about how in history, when the suffering was great because of a self-regulating market, that that's when fascism rises. And that when that suffering is reduced, fascism disappears. So fascism is not something... In and of itself, in a sense, but rather something that is just always standing at the ready to fill in the vacuum of the damage caused by the self-regulating market.
0: Yeah, here I'm, my grasp on history of this uh, phenomena is not very strong. So I, I'm uh, I just read Bolanu on it, and that's uh, all I know. And basically, what you have said is is a good summary that when the Uh, self-regulating market causes too much suffering, then a leader emerges who enforces his will on the people and people are ready to march to any tune to save themselves from the suffering of the market. And uh, viewed in this light, uh, USA is ripe for fascism today. And in fact, you can see that in Trump because the suffering... Caused being uh, caused to the people by the market is just uh, increasing massively and the uh, standards of living have been declining and lives have become more and more miserable over the past um, three decades. Ever since the Reagan Thatcher revolution basically, uh, the labor class has, hasn't made any progress while the capitalists have ga- captured all of the gains from economic growth. So there is a so-called economic puzzle of productivity, that the productivity of laborers has been going up steadily, but their uh, wage has, uh, real wage has remained more or less constant. So people are very puzzled as to how that happens because they don't, in neoclassical, they don't take into account power of the different classes. Mm. Okay.
1: All right. Um, So next one. According to Adam Smith in 1775, man has a natural tendency to barter, to accumulate material things. Essentially, humans have an inherent and internal motivation to be greedy and that all of society's problems can be solved with more greed, with more stuff. So history reveals that these things are not true. The real motivations for obtaining material wealth is as a tool to increase social standing. But in order to perpetuate this ideology of greed, it requires that we ignore history, any history that happens to show that greed is not natural, that wanting to trade and, and barter is not natural. We it requires that we denigrate those who aren't greedy as uncivilized and primitive, and these and these things justify ignoring their history and crushing anyone who stands in the way of our greed. And more broadly, um, it justifies cruelty and discrimination against the poor, which is commodification of the poor requiring a labor market. And Margaret Thatcher's dictum that there is no alternative, Tina was basically her proclamation that the self-regulating market and that, you know, austerity and that we must hurt the poor is unfortunate, but necessary. And the debate is over. And you pointed out something or, I don't think the book did, but you did. That in Jane Austen novels, (laughs) that the quote "the poor" are not the poor; they are the poorest among the aristocracy, the ones who are struggling to hold on to their land that have land at all, and that those in true poverty are never even mentioned. So that's right. So that death to the actual poor is actual death. But death to those in the Jane Austen, the poor in the Jane Austen novels, is becoming those invisible people, is becoming part of the actual poor and essentially being considered worthless and invisible to the aristocracy. So please.
0: Yes, um, Jane, um, well, this is not original with me. A lot of people have uh, discussed this aspect of Jane Austen and even her awareness of colonization. But basically, yes, um, even the main struggle between the uh, protagonists, uh, who is it? Elizabeth, I think, is the lead. And uh, she is uh, not respectable in the eyes of Darcy initially because their family is poor and she is struggling to maintain that she is equal because we are gentlemen, and you are gentlemen, and so we have equal status. So, but anyone beneath her would be just not part of the human beings. They don't have blue blood. I mean, basically, that's the, the, there is the aristocratic class, and the others are non-human beings. And basically, if you look at the tale of two sti- cities, that's what it starts out with, that an estro- aristocrat is racing through the streets of Paris, and his carriage crushes a child. And so he stops and tosses a few gold coins to the family and continues on his merry way. Mm. Mm. And that led to the French Revolution. I mean, that was one of the sparks, I guess. Uh, I mean, it's, it's not that particular. That's a fiction. But that type of thing, That uh, plus other igniting factors.
1: Okay. Um, there's actually... Uh... I hadn't thought about this until I heard you talk about Jane Austen, but actually a movie that my wife and I really, really like a lot mm-hmm. um, is called ever after with drew Barrymore.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. I've seen that too. Oh, it's wonderful. A, it's a wonderful it's a movie. Cinderella remake. Yes.
1: Yes. Cinderella. Yes, exactly. Yes. But it, that's exactly what you're, what, what happens in that movie. They are ah, struggling yes. to yes. hold on to their tiny bit of land. And I never thought, and, and actually she marries the Prince saving yes. the family.
0: Yes.
1: And, and it's actually, I never considered it from that point of view. It's that it is struggling to remain at least, you know, in the aristocracy itself as a, and avoiding becoming what we currently call, you know, impoverished or, you know, real poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Uh, all right. I'm surprised at how quickly this is going. Um, okay. Well, uh, I mean I can come up with some specific questions but before I do can is there I mean you have seven lectures on this plus oh yes oh, not yes. I mean not just the seven lectures you also have a summary you also have a methodology you also have your yes. your written summary um so yes. let me just let me just open it up to you of is there something you know let me just open it up to you is is there yeah. another thing that you would like to bring up about this we have plenty of time
0: yeah sure um, there are some things that basically, in uh, the search for knowledge, I found that the idea of Michel Foucault uh, that we need to look at the source of ideas. So basically, um, we are trained, at least in the educational that I received we were trained to think in terms of true and false. Here is an idea, who uh, had this idea, why they did have it, are not the questions of primary interest. Question of primary interest is, is is this idea true or is it false? So this is um, a very bad way to um, think about things. And because it's ahistorical, as you know, the, one of the major complaints against new classical theory is that it is ahistorical, and uh, MMT does attempt to remedy this a little bit. But uh, at least uh, the mm, the the in the sense that well, MMT goes into the institutional structure of money currently, but it does not really. Discuss the evolution. How did we come to this system? And that I think is a defect. And basically, um, looking at the history of ideas is a very powerful means for understanding how we got to where we are. And so, in that sense, any conventional economics um, completely, any not only. Um, not only do they not study history, but they also exp- say that studying history is useless. There's no point in it because what happened in the past is not relevant to learning about truths. And, and that's completely false. So, in that sense, history is of extreme importance. Uh, this idea itself is suppressed in conventional approaches to knowledge. And one of the greatest contributions of uh, 20th century was Thomas Kuhn on the structure of scientific revolutions, which basically looked at how science has evolved and then came up with some rather surprising insights about the nature of science. Similarly, if we take... um, the current system of capitalism as a given and try to understand it, that will lead to some insights. But when we study how this system came into being, that leads to a radically different set of insights because basically you look at the system from the an external perspective instead of looking at it from the inside. And that really gives you a massive amount of insights which are simply not available to those who are participants in the system. And so that, I think, is the importance of Polanyi. Also, Polanyi got there first. I mean, if I was to go and look at the history, I would never get to uh, this place where Polanyi achieved. I mean, he actually is able to stand outside the streams of history and watch capitalism evolve and convey his insights. So that's really quite brilliant. I mean, uh, it's, it's a lifetime work. And I certainly couldn't have done anything like that, and not not very many could, even after studying all the history. And in fact, historians today—I know them—they just uh, don't have the perspective that Polanyi said. And Polanyi starts by his book by saying, "I am not a historian. Actually, I am looking at what what you might say is meta-history, not just this happened and that that happened, but the why of Uh, Thing you you watch the evolution of institutions, subjected to social forces, and you try to you uh, figure out the dynamics of this process of social change, and in fact, Ibn Khaldun is the first person who did a study of history like this, and so I think that in in many ways, Polanyi was inspired by Ibn Khaldun because. Basically, Ibn Khaldun sets out the theory as study of process of social change. And this is exactly what Polanyi also says, that I'm going to study how societies change. And notice how this is radically different from the economic theory concept of equilibrium, which says, which talks about situations where society will not change. And these situations never actually arise, so we're studying a, a dead event. So this idea of history of ideas is extremely important and very unfamiliar for the most part. When you use the word social science, then the word science has the assumption of universal laws valid across time and place and geography and history. And so once you have a universal law, if you have the law of gravity, what has history got to do with? And if something is... If you talk about the World War One and how it happened, well, that was a particular incident. It's uh, there's no laws to be had, so it's not. It can't be part of science. So once you use the word science, you're dead. Uh, that is, you can never learn anything, and that's uh, that's a more fundamental problem. So I think that's uh, enough off the cuff remarks.
1: Um. Okay. Uh, a follow up with that is, who specifically? today, don't want history and society and institutions studied?
0: Well, basically, I think this is part of Polanyi's uh, message. He says that the market wants to strip people of their identity, of their history, of their society, and turn them into human resources, sort of interchangeable parts for use in the machine for production. If If you know your history, then you have a broader sense of who you are and a vision for the future and a perspective on working together collectively for larger goals. All of these things are lost when you don't study history. So capitalism very strongly doesn't want us to focus on history. It wants us to focus on the imaginary. Speaking of um, movies, I think that Matrix is another one. And Uh, that's actually very, very strongly representative of what is happening to us. We are being trained to live in a fantasy world. And the reality is that we are just parts producing energy for the capitalist machine. I think that artists have a much better artist and literature people have a much better sense of what the world is moving at a deeper level than the average person uh can understand or express um
1: okay uh i'd like to do one more uh, a bigger question and a smaller question and then let's get to my original final question and that is uh i'll give you the small one first can you briefly you you kind of touched on this by saying you know uh capitalism whatever the, the those that benefit from capitalism don't want you to look at history because it's inconvenient for them and that Pol- you have a paper about Polanyi's methodology oh, which yes. is kind of common sense but it's just basically Polanyi makes it clear or you know he you can't separate history from economics from a whole bunch of things can you address that
0: Oh yes yes this is i think crucial and this is the fatal flaw at the heart of Western social science, that uh, they treat the human experience as an external object. You see, in science, we study the world out there and we don't interact with it. I mean, how what I wish to do, uh, if I say that the gravity is 9.7 meters per second squared, but I wish it was higher or it was lower that just doesn't make any sense. But when it comes to history, human beings our ideas, our visions, our goals shape history. So this is, this is to, if we want to understand economic theory, then we have to uh, we have to study this two-way causation which I call entanglement um, history, Uh, as it happens, affects us. And we want to try to manipulate. We want to try to change things. Then we have to understand the historical processes unfolding around us so that we can control them, shape them. We have to understand what are the forces which are driving change. And so to do that, it always requires going beyond X happened and then Y happened. You have to guess at the hidden causes which are driving things. And those are the theories that we have. Now, once you have a theory uh, in hand, it may be a very bad theory, but it gives you a line of action. So, when a group of people adopt a theory, uh, they don't normally look at whether the theory is true or not. What they look at is how this theory protects their interests. And if the theory is good for them in the sense that Taking actions, policy actions based on this theory will help their their group. To, uh, will will strengthen the group. Then they go for this theory and they say this is the correct theory which explains what's happening around us, and therefore we must act in such and such a way. Other groups have their own theories. So, but but now what happens uh, in history as a result of this? Is a consequence of this battle between different kinds of theories. To give a a very concrete and specific example, uh, this is discussed by Atif Mia and Amir Sufi in their book called uh, The House of Debt. They say that when the financial crisis occurred, there were two competing theories about why it happened and what was necessary to do to save the system. One theory which they offer is that it happened due to excessive household debt. And so the solution to the problem was to uh, give emergency loans to all house households with mortgages who, had, uh, who, who could not pay their mortgages. The other loan was that this was, uh, the problem was the collapse of the financial system and the liquidity crunch that would result And this asked for bailing out the financial system. If instead of bailing out the financial system, which had caused this crisis, the mortgagers had been bailed out. The the amount of bailout required would have been substantially less in the billions instead of in the trillions. And also the great recession which followed would have been averted. But this theory was not adopted because it did not favor the interests of the rich. And so what happened in history was that there was this battle of two theories and the theory which won was not the right theory, but the theory which won was the one which was used in uh, conducting policy. And therefore that theory prevailed and it shaped the policy response. We try to understand history. We try to shape history by the way of theories. Our theories then shape history and history shapes the theories. So this is the what I call entanglement.
1: Okay, good. Um, okay, so my uh, I'll, I'll, uh, a final question before my original final question is is the following. It, it, there, there's the idea that you know government is bad, anti-government. That the government can do nothing except for interfere with the free market. So the idea is that government. Just get get government out of our way. You know, Reagan government is the problem. You know, uh, the problem is more government. You know, we are the problem. We're going to – I'm here. I'm president to get them out of your way. Um, so the idea is that the, that the market is inherently a bad thing. But the reality is, is that those on top do not think the government is a bad thing they think it is a bad thing when it tries to help the people and that they want the government to be very powerful. They want it to be powerful for them. And also, Polanyi points this out, that a self-regulating market actually requires more government because it is necessary to suppress those who express displeasure with being so badly exploited by the market, so that a self-regulating market actually requires more government in order to suppress the uprising of those who suffer because of the self-regulating market. So,
0: Absolutely. I think this is a a brilliant insight of uh, Polanyi, and it can be verified by the experience of Chile, where uh, Milton Friedman himself went to advise the general Pinochet, and basically um, the free market was inflicted a massive amount of damage to a massive portion of the population. And there was no way that the unrest could have been managed except by really brutal and ruthless dictatorial policies. So basically, the market unrest creates uh, damages society and somehow or the other, basically capitalism is about managing the unrest that will be created by the free market or the unregulated market. Uh, And um, uh, in the USA, a rather different route has been taken to manage the unrest. One is to divorce people from history, so they don't realize what is happening to them, Uh, and the historical process. The other is to divorce people from each other, break down the society. There is no such thing as society. You're all alone. You're all individuals you should struggle on your own and compete with others instead of forming bonds social bonds and creating groups which have the potential of toppling society and um, in uh, providing you with entertainment to keep you busy so that you don't think about the bigger problems that uh, the collective problems you think about your own personal problems but never about the society as a whole and you are are told that um, only dupes worry about others only stupid people sacrifice their lives lives for greater causes and so basically all forms of collective effort are um, discouraged and um, made extremely difficult
1: can you talk about um, that anti-government the feet the, the the you know anti-government sentiment is enormous and oh. in in my speculation that those who benefit from anti-government sentiment are those who cause the government to needlessly and purposefully act terribly meaning the rich are sabotaging the government which causes people to feel anti-government sentiment that they can't do anything right. And so they run to those who sabotage the government. They run to the rich. They run to the private market. You know, let's have more free market. But they're the ones behind the scenes sabotaging the government.
0: Uh, Absolutely. I think they're no longer behind the scenes. The government is in the pockets of the multimillionaire corporations. And most of the congressmen are millionaires themselves. And democracy the concept of democracy is just uh, such a, a open sham that it's it's a joke it's really pathetic on any movement on any on any point where the majority sentiment is against that of the corporations the majority will lose and the corporations will win And so um, the the idea of the evil government, is, only, is, is very, very selectively uh, applied. The government is not evil when it provides a trillion dollar bailout to the corporations, but it will become evil if it provides a billion dollar bailout to the mortgagers. So the government is not supposed to help the people, it's only supposed to help the wealthy. So this is just very, very crude propaganda, uh, but uh, seems to be sufficient.
1: But okay. So the part that really confuses me is that average people buy into this. And what I mean by that is there is a huge element of protecting privilege. And like, for example, Biden, you know, we can't, we can't afford four more years of Trump. So we have to vote for Biden. Okay, great. Now we have Biden. Now what? The only advantages that I see is that we have, you know, we don't have stupid tweets at (laughs) 3am. And, and it's, it's, you know, there, I, I see people as protecting privilege, that those who wanted Biden are now not speaking out against Biden because they're, they're stable enough. And, you know, in a way, it's kind of like, you know, how dare you? You know, you're, we're ignoring those at the bottom. But in another sense, it's that that is what's required. This system requires hurting. This system requires hurting others in order to genuinely do what's best for yourself. You it is impossible to to do what is genuinely best for you and your family without hurting others. And I actually am kind of gaining a little bit of sympathy for those who protect our privilege because I think that that is kind of that that's their way of doing it and and you know that it's impossible for to help the poor without hurting me, which is the taxpayer myth. You know, I say, I, I want to help the poor, but really I kind of don't want to help the poor because that would hurt me. If, you know, they falsely right. believe that. So can you can you address that same point of anti-government, that it is reinforced by average people, even though it's so blatantly obvious?
0: Yes, that's right. So basically, a lot of illusions have to be manufactured and, and uh, people have, Marx said this, that the... Capitalism exploits laborers, not by force, but by making the laborers believe that their own exploitation is a necessary part of the system and is essential to give and that gives the best possible results. So basically, brainwashing people into thinking that uh, whatever is happening to them is the best possible and that they're living in the great society and the... America the beautiful, all of these illusions are necessary to allow this extremely ugly system to survive. And so the capitalists have become really experts at creating this matrix type illusion, which keeps the people uh, fed on fantasies while the reality is starkly different. Uh, The the particular myths be in use like the government is bad or the government is good, these don't really matter. But the illusion of democracy and uh, Biden versus Trump, etc. Tweedle Tweedledum versus Tweedle D, Tweedle versus all... Tweedle <laughs> Dumber, Yes, <laughs> that's,
1: that's uh, credit to Robin Williams for
0: that. <laughs> I see, that's good. I haven't heard that before, but that's um, that's essential uh, part of the strategy that the people are deluded into think that we are voting. So we are actually, we are actually making the choices when they actually don't have any choices. It's um, as you lose and tails I win. That's the kind of choice that people are being offered but they're happy to flip the coin anyway. They think that they have a choice when they really don't. And so this this illusion is an important part of keeping the people pacified and happy with this uh, system.
1: Yeah. And, and it's uh, what is most upsetting with related to those, you know, those average people who basically defend Biden. But then but then when he's in office, they don't question anything that he does or doesn't do, like with climate change and whatever. Um, is that, you know, they have they provide health care for all is very important to them. And they have elected a really, really nice, personally nice congressman who his primary thing was, you know, health care for all. And now it's now it's four years after he first said health for all in his campaign. And now he's worried about inflation for health for all. And yet these people mm-hmm. still love this guy. And I see this as a manifestation of that. Um, uh, okay. Let's go to my final original question. And that is, we can always change our path, but on the path that we are on, uh, it's pretty bad. And I think it's, and I, I've heard you say in one of your Polanyi lectures in like, you know, 2050, are we going to be here at all? And, or at least, you know, those of us that are not the oligarchs, are we going to be here at all? And, um, it has been something that I've been really thinking about is how to be a parent to, I have a, a 12 and 15 year old boys. And I was brought up of don't question. Um, I remember asking about a walking bridge. Well, what if it falls or whatever, you know, and, and I was told that walking bridge will never fall because it was designed by people who would never allow it to fall. Right. I remember being in a car with, we went to a lumber yard and there was a huge piece of lumber right next to my head in the car. And I was worried mm. and I said something and, and I, I was told, "We, I promise you that I will not get into an accident. And it's just like, you know, don't question things. Don't worry your pretty little head. Basically shut up and mm. take what you can get and keep your head down and I don't want that for my boys. I want, I want them to be kids, but I want to balance. I want to balance allowing them to be kids, but knowing that they're essentially walking into a buzzsaw and, and, you know, the second half of their lives, I think it, I think as best as I understand is going to be filled with violence and unprecedented instability. So I would like to ask you, number one, am I correct or how, you know, I mean, correct. You know, we, we, we can't say for sure, but given our current path, how realistic is my speculation of what we're, what we should be anticipating in the next, whatever, 20, 30 years. And then after that, I would like to ask you of what would you say as a parent to 12 and 15 year old boys to give them a realistic sense of what to expect without, you know, destroying their childhood, basically of, you know, scaring them out of a childhood.
0: Yes. Well, I think that If you look at the new evolutionary theory, you find that this idea of survival of the fittest has been radically modified. Basically in harsh environments, it takes a lot of cooperation to succeed. And uh, this idea, uh, there were some very interesting experiments. Uh, I think there's somebody called Ed Wilson or who is uh, the leading uh, new Darwinian, and basically, so if we are facing a harsh environment, which is going to happen, then if you want to survive, it's not going to be each man for himself. That doesn't work in a harsh environment. In a harsh environment, it takes a lot of cooperation to survive. So, uh, exactly the opposite strategy is needed. How do we build teams? How do we build friends? How do we socialize? This is what uh, the skill that needs to be taught. With of course, if you, I mean, if you take Theoretical game theory, then you find that people who, uh, you have to have both um, the ability to cooperate and the ability to punish defections from cooperative behavior. These two are essential to building up a group. You can't be all nice, nice, uh, uh, turn the other cheek all the time. Uh, But you should presume that other people are nice and cooperative. Until you are betrayed, and when you are betrayed, then you should punish severely the betrayers. And that uh, creates uh, social cohesion. And that's how societies work. I mean, if somebody does something that is antisocial, he can be ostracized. And that's the uh, removed from the society. And so in terms of teaching children to survive in harsh environments, the thing is not to teach them... To be selfish and and greedy and look out for their interests against that of others, the teaching that our children need is how to work together in groups to uh, groups to achieve uh, collective goals. Is that?
1: Um, I mean that that makes sense, but but I mean no no that makes perfect sense. But I'm actually trying to uh, I I I don't know maybe maybe you, you're maybe, I don't know, maybe you just don't want to address that particular side of it, but yes, that is, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I kind of want to basically sit my kids down and say, I mean, well, let me ask you first before, aside from the kid thing, is my assessment reasonable that, you know, oh, absolutely. Years or I think or whatever, we are
0: um, on the brink of a huge catastrophe and, Certainly, we are not acting in ways that will uh, help the chances of our survival. Jared Diamond, I think, has written a book about how civilizations go extinct because they simply respond to the threats which are well-known, obvious, and even the line of action required to counteract them are obvious, but there's just too much inertia, and that's what we see today. Uh, the ra- timeline for counteracting disastrous climate change is rapidly running out and uh, no action is being taken because people are just acting selfishly, not cooperatively.
1: Because just... those on top require fossil fuels in order uh, yeah. to stay on top. Right. I mean, I mean, basically it seems to me that those on top will die in, you know, in the way that we spoke about before with Jane Austen novels of becoming part of the many, those on no. top will die if they don't continue pumping out fossil fuels as fast and as hard as they can. And all conversely, for us, if they don't stop pumping out fossil fuels, then we are going to die. Yes, yes. I mean, it really is, I mean, it seems to be that simple yes um, that's right. um okay, so yeah, you answered the question of basically, how can they cope in that situation Yes. my original question was what would you say to children to give them an idea of what to expect of basically the the incredible hardships if not you know way <laughs> extreme hardships uh, and, but think- say it in a way that doesn't doesn't don't scare them so should, badly that they don't continue living there, you know, having I a don't child.
0: think we should, um, we should just tell them that the future is highly uncertain, very bad things can happen, but not dwell on it. But instead, we should work on giving them skills required, like living close to the land, trying to grow food, and so on, I think, and, and uh, becoming self-sufficient. And those are the kind of skills that we need to develop. For the and and focusing on living lives of peace and harmony and and living and in the moment, uh, realizing the value of every moment, every precious moment of life that is given to us, treasuring it, cherishing it, and so on. So those are the, the I mean there are things you can do to make it positive. Just just like the end of life training, if you look at people who are at their end of life, how we should deal with them and how we should be them if we are in that position. I think those are the lessons that we need to impart. You should be in peace and harmony with regardless of whether you're going to die tomorrow.
1: Okay. All right. So that's fair. That That's um. how do you, I mean, I guess, I mean, whatever I'm, I'm kind of asking the impossible, but whatever this, these are my thoughts of, you know, these things that you're recommending of, of, being self sufficient basically being self sufficient but but in a in a in a communal sense in a in a community right, sense right right i think that is that
0: is good that is useful I mean, not being one household but a group of similarly minded people who work together to achieve self sufficiency with the help of each other that would be the ideal stance to take at this point and find some place high in the mountains where you can set up a community.
1: (laughs) Right. Well, I mean, that, that kind of alludes to what I'm, what I'm thinking, which is, yeah, that's, I agree. Of course, of course that is what you need to do, but that is in a society where that is, I mean, to say it's frowned upon is, you know, it's against greed, basically that, that's, that is standing against. So how do you, how do, I mean, basically in order to do what's best, in order to do what's best you have to stand against forces that are stopping you from trying to do exactly that so that that's is true. the that is the challenge
0: that's right how do i join the amish <laughs> that's the problem
1: i'm actually pretty close to the amish so <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> it's only like 3 yes. hour drive or 4 hour drive right. away right um, i think that's um, what i'm recommending <laughs> okay all right. Um, all right, well, uh, we we went through everything that I wanted to go through. Is, it, is there anything that you would like to close out with? Are there any what what would you like to say before we stop?
0: Uh, uh, there's a Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times. So I think that we are living in very interesting times.
1: Okay. Profound ending. (laughs) Um, Thank you for talking with me. Thanks for doing this. Great. Thanks for having me. Music for this show is done by Rec Tech. You can find RecTech on SoundCloud and Spotify at W-R-E-C-K underscore T-E-C-H. Thank you for listening to the show. See you next time on Historically. Today's part two of my two-part conversation with Asad Zaman on the 2001 edition of Carl Polanyi's 1944 book, The Great Transformation. This is also the final part in a larger four-part series on the book. Parts one and two are with Jackson Winter. Jackson and I are two smart layperson NMTers trying to come to terms with the depth of what we just read and connecting it to our lives and NMT. Parts three and four are with Professor Zaman, who is a Ph.D. economist with many lectures, papers, and posts on the topic, all of which you can find in the show notes to part one with Professor Zaman. Part one also contains a summary of the book. You think you understand the foundation of our economy and society, but as described in The Great Transformation, there's another foundation beneath it. If you like what you hear, then I hope you might consider becoming a monthly patron of Activist MMT. Patrons have exclusive access to several full-length episodes right now. Patrons also get the opportunity to ask my academic guests questions, including my recent episode with Warren Mosler. They also support the development of my large and growing collection of Learn MMT resources and the course with Professor Zaman. To become a patron, you can start by going to patreon.com/activistmmt. Every little bit helps, a little bit, and it all adds up to a lot. Thanks. And now, let's get right back to my conversation with Assad Zaman. Enjoy